Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast on Business Insider Australia. You can find us under iTunes under Devils and Details, um, on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Um, and our guest uh, this week is the fantastic Joanne Masters, who is a senior economist um, at uh, at ANZ um, and uh, a former um, FX strategist in her previous life. Joanne, um, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here on your podcast. Fantastic. Um, and with us, as always, is uh, Business Insider's um, Global Markets and Economics uh, correspondent, David Scott. Yes, uh, you haven't got rid of me yet. Uh, hello, everyone, and hello, world. Okay, so, um, look, our, uh, the show is really, um, uh, this week, um, all about inflation report that came out uh, on Wednesday. Now, so just want to come back to some basics quickly, right? So in- inflation being super important for all sorts of reasons. Um, one of the th- key things that happens when prices are rising um, across the board is, you know, companies can charge more for the products, helps businesses grow and invest, um, and you tend to get wage rises, so people f- feel that they're getting ahead. Um, and then on the policy side, the RBA has a mission uh, to keep the inflation rate between 2 and 3% um, over the course of the economic cycle. And these cuts in the interest rate to stimulate activity or demand in the economy, and, and therefore, um, you know, what tends to happen in normal, uh, in normal, uh, in a normal environment is that you get prices going up. Now, overwhelmingly, there's been a pattern where the RBA tends to cut rates after a weak uh, inflation report, and that's what happened uh, three months ago in May. Um, whether uh, it will happen again uh, next Tuesday um, is the talk of the markets right now. And Scotty, we were um, almost joking on Wednesday morning, saying that if it was 0.5 for the quarter. Um, there'd be no cut, and if it was 0.4, um, they'd probably go, and it came in at exactly 0.5, not 0.45. Well, not exactly 0.45. You just With the two rounded figures on the ABS side, it was 0.45, but it was slightly hotter. I think it was 0.48 Q and Q. Um, yeah, in this morning, the morning of the, uh, the CPI release, uh, I was bleary-eyed, and I was getting very uh, you know, excited and prepared for the other uh, CPI release, and I said to the guys, 0.4, I think, you know, it'll be enough to go and push the RBO over the line to go and, uh, and cut. 0.5 would probably be enough to go and see them on hold. It would keep the uh, their, their baseline forecast in line with uh, with what they were predicting back in May. And then, of course, I just made that little line about uh, no, 0.45%. Now, that'll be almost no certain to be the uh, the right now. And then, bang, there it was. So now it's uh, it's left the markets in a very interesting position. Uh, you know, 50-50, give or take a, a few percentage points either way as to whether we'll get a rate cut next week. Okay, so can you talk us quickly through what happened market reaction uh, the market reaction was uh, it was weird. It was the CPI initially, the Aussie dollar spiked uh, quite aggressively straight after the uh, after the figure. Uh, particularly, everyone was looking at the core inflation rate of uh, you know point four eight and then one point five year on year or one point four nine, I think it was. Uh, but then, of course, uh, Bank of Japan speculation came in on, over the top of that and overrode that, and then all of a sudden the Aussie went from being up about uh, no, nearly a percent to to down nearly a percent uh, in the space of about an hour and a half. So. That was interesting. Uh, stocks, you know, just meandered. They're not really interested in anything to do with uh, with them. They know that policy is going to be very, very uh, stimulatory. That's going to support them. 
Rates markets, uh, no, they sold off a little bit, uh, reflecting the, the lesser likelihood that we'll see a, a rate cut. But uh, no, nothing too substantial to go and, and get really excited about. Uh, and then just quickly, the cash rate futures um, in terms of pricing for um, what the RBA will do next week. Uh, Joanne, what happened there? Yeah, well, we saw uh, market expectations straight after the CPI data only at just over 50% for next week. But as we sit here this morning, it's uh, just above 60%. So back to where it was a couple of weeks ago. And broadly, um, I think a reasonable sort of expectation or probability for next week. So your call uh, for next Tuesday is a cut. Yep. On balance, we're expecting the RBA to ease next week. Uh, now, part of that is the inflation story. And, and a little bit like you said, I think a lot of people thought anything below 0.5, uh, you know, raised the chances of a rate cut and anything above 0.5 probably took it off the table. And we've got something that's sort of sitting right in the middle. But the narrative is not just about inflation. It's also about the labour market and the housing market. And from my own perspective, also about where the Aussie dollar is. And I think a key factor is actually the slowdown in the labour market that we've seen in the last six months or so. And uh, the minutes from the last RBA meeting also mentioned the underemployment rate. So that's something they haven't talked about for a while. And underemployment is quite high. It's above 8% and almost at record highs. So I think that shift in language and the focus combined with an inflation rate that is perhaps in line with the RBA's expectations, but ultimately still low and expected to stay there, uh, lends way to a rate cut next week. So I want to just go through some of the... the um features um, of the of the inflation report and I suppose for anybody listening um, who's um, you know perhaps doesn't sort of move in in um, you know financial markets or like us financial journalists this is every economist and their dog has a view on what's going to happen uh, next Tuesday and the different reasons why the RBA uh, should or should not um, uh, uh, ease policy um, but it, just, just one example that um, I, I pulled out during the week and I think it's a pretty good potted summary um, the Goldman Sachs, uh, Tim Tui, who's the, the, the economist here in Australia, um, he pointed out, look, first of all, there's headline inflation is running at the weakest in 18 years and is decelerating. So um, the markets tend to look towards the core uh, number, which is what the RBA um, tries to keep between 2 and 3%, but headline inflation is falling. Then um, underlying inflation... Uh, he also notes is that you know it's running at the equal weakest since the data became available 14 years ago. The broad dra- downtrend in annual inflation still identifiable. And then third, he says that you know inflation doesn't take into account two areas that Australian economists have long regarded as the primary source of future inflation: tradables and the and the non-tradable services sector. Right. So, um, and to your point, uh, Joe, um, you know it's notable that the prior weakness in in the Australian dollar um, uh, has again failed to drive. Um, tradable inflation. So, so one of the features of this is, you know, we've got um, a dollar which is lower than than where it was um, a, even a year ago, um, but um, it's still kind of, in some ways, a little bit stubbornly high, sort of 75, um, 75 US cents. Um, but you've got combined with this, you've got this fierce competition in the economy, which is. Um, compounding the effect of a slightly higher dollar than than we'd um, than perhaps the economy could use. Look, that's absolutely right. It's sort of the missing inflation, if you like. Uh, tradable inflation is, if you take out uh, the volatile items around petrol and fruit, vegetable and tobacco, uh, is effectively flat year on year. And yet we've had a substantial depreciation in the Australian dollar from its highs. Now, 
The old rule of thumb uh, is that a 10% change in your currency feeds through to 1% on headline inflation, evenly split over three years. And the reality is we're just not seeing that. Now, interestingly, we are seeing it uh, in prices at the dock, if you like. So uh, a weaker Australian dollar makes your imports more expensive, and that feeds through to inflation generally. So what we're seeing is uh, the price that businesses are paying for their inputs has actually gone up, but it's not passing through to the consumer or the retail level. And that reflects a couple of things. But as you say, competition is the big one. Now, the one we tend to think about is via the internet. So internet shopping, not just being able to purchase over the internet, but also price discovery. So consumers can compare prices both domestically and offshore much more easily. So, so I often uh, use this example now where, you know, it's, it's almost established behavior in a department store to pick something off the rack, try it on, come out of that changing room and look up the item on your phone and to see you know how does the price compare with something that you could get um, delivered online next week look absolutely or even delivered this afternoon in many yeah. cases which is amazing right so but the the competition pressure in Australia is actually broader than that and it's quite unique to Australia in the sense that we're getting competition in actual bricks and mortar stores from offshore entrants. So we've seen most obviously in the supermarket space and clothing space and for any of your female audience out there, H&M, Zara, Forever 21, you know, all those brands actually opening up physical stores here in Australia. And of course in the supermarket space we've had Aldi and Costa, Costco sorry, and there's also talk of other um, offshore supermarkets entering into the space. And to put it into perspective, Audi is planning on opening 60 new stores this year alone and 120 stores over the next three years. So the, the pressure from not just the internet but from physical store presence in Australia is really intense. And what that's doing is it's forcing a squeeze on margins. So businesses are paying more for what they, what they import but they're actually having to absorb that into the margin level and not passing it on to consumers. So you're not getting the feed through into headline inflation that you would normally get from the Aussie dollar and that trend isn't going away. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, just looking at, um, you know, how we do things um, at home, you know, we split our shopping now between Aldi and um, and, and Woolworths or Coles um, because there are some things which just you're just crazy to pay the prices that, um, as a consumer, the prices that, that Woolworths is um, is charging for some consumer items. And if there's a store nearby, then it's, um, uh, it's uh, you know, you'll, you'll save a few bucks. Um, and, um, you know, all the analysts in the retail sector sort of look at this and, as you say, you know, that this is, um, you know, Woolworths is undergoing huge restructure and announced that it's, you know, laying off um, another 500 um, people uh, this week. Um, yeah, it's, um, it puts those big established Australian companies um, under a lot of pressure. And just more broadly on the retail sector, it's a huge employer. Um, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people, I think, um, around the country. Um, uh, I think that, you know, the, the retail union is the largest, has the largest membership in the country. Um, so the way this feeds through is not just, you know, the, the, the effect on consumers and on um, uh, consumers and then on companies' bottom lines, but it also feeds through this low uh, inflation environment, feeds through to wages too. So you don't, the companies can't pass on or can't generate, um, uh, you know, wage increases for those, you know, vast numbers of people working in the retail sector. And, of course, that has a further um, softening uh, impact on, on demand. Look, 
Absolutely. Uh, as you said, the retail sector is a big employer. And when you're under the sort of competitive pressures that we're seeing retailers in Australia under, you're looking for cost efficiencies wherever you can. So, you know, we've talked about margin compression and in the supermarket space, that's really been squeezed at the wholesale level, but retail margins will be squeezed in the years ahead. But they're also looking for productivity drives, efficiency drives, technology drives, and of course, wages are often their biggest cost. Uh, so they'll be looking to maintain very low wage growth. And and that does feed through to inflation, not through that tradable sector, but through the non-tradable sector. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a bit of a technical term in a sense. But that's basically prices that aren't open to international competition. They're prices that are set domestically. And outside of uh, administered goods or those goods where the government has a role in setting prices, the biggest driver of non-tradable inflation is wages. And wage growth in Australia is running close to all-time lows and has been decelerating and has been as big a part of the low inflation story as the lack of pass-through from the lower Aussie dollar. So um, let's just look at some of the other components. One of the great things that I saw called out in the uh, uh, the ANZ uh, Insight report on um, on the inflation data was that uh, meat prices went down uh, 0.3%. So food category overall, understandably maybe with the, the grocery um, category, Aldi and all that kind of stuff, those pressures, fine. But um, meat prices, which have been actually growing quite strongly for the last few years, and I think beef, um, beef and uh, uh, lamb farmers have been pretty happy. We've, um, we've seen now this, this um, suddenly meat prices are going backwards. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What's going on there? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, as you said, food as category overall fell in the quarter. Um, now, fruit and vegetable tends to be very volatile, so we tend to sort of uh, look outside of that, if you like. But the new trend is this uh, fall in, in meat prices. So meat prices overall fell in the quarter, and across the various categories, that uh, every category of meat fell with the exception of beef prices, which were flat in the quarter. Now, this is really interesting because meat prices, as you said, have been really quite strong, and that's reflected actually in a global shortage of meat or a global shortage of protein, more specifically, and the fact that Australia is a big feeder into China and the, the broader food bowl of Asia. So we've had very strong prices at the wholesale level and at the retail level for food, but now we're starting to see that come off, and that's a great thing for consumers. Why is it happening? Well, it's happening because, uh, as I said, the supermarkets up until now have driven their... Uh, ability to keep prices low really by driving wholesale prices down but now, now they need to drive their retail margins down and so meat's a big part of what they sell so that's going to be a big part of it and Coles has been the first mover on that so there's always that first mover advantage and in such a tightly held market uh, you're going to see that competitive pressure so I expect meat prices to remain under pressure and uh, we talked about price wars in airlines a couple of years ago and we've talked about it broadly in food but you know we're going to see uh, a sort of price war in in meat and that's good for the consumer but bad for retailers. Yes, anyone who's uh, been going to supermarket, and I do, I've got a Coles that's right near my place, and I'm a, a West Farmer shareholder as well. I'll just go and make that disclosure. Uh, there's been lots of um, lots of uh, discounts that you've seen. Uh, I know that uh, roast chickens, you know, they were you know, 12, 13 bucks a pop. Now they're eight bucks, I think. Uh, I know them Woolworths followed suit. I know they're doing very similar things with pork, but. I wish no. My, uh, I really, really like lamb, and lamb is going through the roof. So, no, if we had a, a CPI index that was just purely based on lamb, we'd have no, uh, no problems with deflation or disinflation. We'd uh, hike any interest rates to go and, and calm the, uh, the demand for lamb. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a big contributing factor. 
Well, lamb is particularly seasonal, of course. It has more seasonal factor than other meats, but it did fall in the quarter, so that's encouraging. One of the things about um, being at BI is there's, you know, there's an awful lot of very strange things sort of cross your desk, you know, people looking for attention for things. But one thing that just caught my eye, which I would normally never look at, was the... You know, um, the um, the fisheries authority announced that they, it was opening. The, it was the scallop season in uh, in the Bass Strait, and it's going to have um, the biggest quota in six years uh, on scallops. So there's going to be this flood of uh, of, of scallop supply. Um, so you know maybe um, if you know currently like scallops are kind of seen as a high end luxury item. You know in a few months' time they'll be you know. Um, they're easy to get, you know, it'll be scallop surprise for dessert, maybe, you know, scallops in the morning for breakfast. Um, so, um, look, just fascinating. I want to just um, uh, move on to a couple of other categories because, as I said, this is uh, – the, the inflation picture is not just – it's not just the food. It's not just the wages. It, there's a whole bunch of other uh, factors, um, and one of those is um, commodities. Um, David, um, can you just chat a little bit about iron ore, you know, and one of its – another one of its crazy rallies? Um, I think just last night. Um, uh, it's Friday morning as we're recording. Um, it's back up through, you know, 60 US dollars. Um, now, iron ore price is hugely volatile at the moment, but let's talk about the broad picture with commodities um, and uh, maybe we can touch on the oil price as well. Where do you start with iron ore? You know, one day it's down 3%, the next day it's up 2%. Uh, it's had a very, very strong run recently, um, nearly 9% this week, and this leaves it at a shade under 40% up year to date. Uh, as for what the factors are driving uh, iron ore, uh, obviously a big stimulus spend in, uh, in China, particularly the infrastructure that the government was rolling out uh, and is still rolling out at this point, uh, has contributed to that. Uh, a big part of it is still speculation in my perspective. Uh, a lot of it's been driven by Dalian futures. Now, everyone's made the other uh, joke about uh, cab drivers in, uh, in Shanghai driving you know, the, um, the price of Australia's uh, largest goods export. Um, and unfortunately, I think there is a bit of that uh, around. There's also been... Uh, stoppages and, uh, and halts in production due to ceremonial events in some of the big uh, steelmaking centres in China, which is also contributing to this. And now there's even talk about uh, uh, some tariffs being put on uh, low-cost uh, iron ore producers such as BHP Billiton and Rio Tinto and Fortescue by uh, Chinese iron ore producers, which I think is uh, quite a strange, uh, strange anomaly, particularly what their steel sector is doing to, uh, to other ca- uh, countries around the world at the moment by... You know, potentially dumping a lot of uh, cheap steel product into the market. So it's, you know, pot calling uh, the kettle black in that perspective. Um, as for crude, uh, you know, had a big run-up, a lot of speculative, uh, you know, forces involved there and a lot of supply disruptions as well. Obviously, you had a lot of attacks in uh, Nigeria. You also had the other uh, wildfires in Canada and you also had a big drop-off in U.S. crude production as well. Uh, but I remember writing earlier this week and over the last few weeks, there's actually... Um, there's been an increase uh, in the number of wells that have been operating in the U.S., and you're starting to see a bit of in, uh, an uptick in, uh, in production levels. And then you throw into that as well a demand, which was expected to be quite solid, is actually coming a bit under what markets were expecting. Lo and behold, here we are overnight. Uh, in West Texas uh, Intermediate had a, a, has now been 20 cent, 20% below what its peak was in June. So it's actually in a technical bear market right now. Um, and of course, um, you know, we we have been talking for months about maybe the bottom has been in on oil, right? Um, uh, and of course, uh, Joe, this feeds very hugely important input into um, the inflation picture here in Australia, right? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, petrol prices are a key thing that people spend their money on, so therefore quite a significant weight in the CPI, just over 3% of the whole CPI basket. And it's been a really big driver uh, in the sense that we've had this enormous volatility. It doesn't feed through one-to-one to the Bowser for the consumer, but it certainly does follow a similar trend. So just in this week's numbers, uh, petrol prices added 0.1 of the uh, 0.4 quarter-on-quarter rise that we had in headline inflation. So it absolutely is important for inflation, and it's important for consumer uh, spending patterns as well. Um, it does tend to get trimmed out of the underlying numbers, though. So, you know, one of the things that the Reserve Bank does is they try to look through uh, temporary volatility in prices or movements in prices that are outside of policy control, if you like. So fuel tends to be one that you exclude from a policy point of view, but really important when you're looking at the economy and, and at wages and at spending patterns and those sort of things. Look, one of the advantages of being an economist and not a market strategist is that you can sort of step back a little bit. And whilst there's been a lot of volatility in iron ore and also in oil, from an economic point of view, they're kind of broadly stable um, in a reasonable range. And we're sort of seeing supply responses on either side of that range that are suggest that the, the sort of range we've been in in the last couple of months is what we're going to see over the next few months. So broadly, uh, we do think our commodity prices are stabilising, stabilising at a low level, not suggesting that they start to rally substantially from here, but we sort of think the low is near. Yeah, of course. When I go and talk about percentage changes, it's uh, you know it's percentage of not much. You know, is is the answer now? It's uh, you know obviously commodity prices have been thumped over the recent years, and that's partly in response to the U.S. dollar, but also supply coming on board. But yeah, saying twenty percent, uh, you know, twenty percent for uh, crude prices going back in two thousand eleven would have been a uh, forty forty buck drop. Uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, just shy of ten dollars at the moment. Um, so just uh, another component um, that was weak uh, was rental prices. Um, so David, you looked at this uh, during the week, um, you know, at a national level, very, very weak. Um, but um, when you start to look at it on a state-by-state state, uh, basis, it's a different picture. It is, but it's just reflective of what the, uh, the overall economic trends are across the country. In my perspective, you know, you've got uh, you know, East Coast economies humming, particularly Sydney and, uh, and probably to a lesser degree Melbourne as the capital cities. Uh, and also a lot of the touristy destinations uh, in Queensland as well are doing very well. Uh, but it's a supply response. Once again, you've got a lot of supply coming on. Uh, you've got uh, immigration levels, while still high, uh, net uh, immigration is actually falling. It's actually stabilised at the moment, but uh, it was falling for quite a few years. And you put those two factors together, a lot of supply coming on and obviously a lot of demand, which is also you know, dropping away, then naturally you're going to have a downside pressure on rents. Yeah, so um, we, we mentioned that fuel um, prices, because oil stabilizing, et cetera, um, that might feed into a little bit of upward pressure uh, on inflation, the overall um, uh, inflation picture. Um, a couple of other things uh, going up. One, uh, Joe, that uh, you called out was um, the cost of building a new home, so new dwelling uh, purchase prices. Uh, very important given the um, level of building activity, I suppose, that there is in the eastern states at the moment. Absolutely. Look, I think it's a really interesting line item. Uh, it has a really high weight in the CPI. It's 9% of the CPI. And as you said, it's the cost of building a new a new home. So we have rents on one side and cost of building a new home on the other. And as you would expect, those prices have been running quite strongly. So around 1% quarter on quarter or 4% over the year, and therefore contributing quite a bit to, to the inflation um, numbers. 
What we saw at the end of last year and the very beginning of this year is that inflation in that sector, in that building of new homes, literally collapsed. So it went from sort of 1% per quarter down to we had a 0.1 quarter on quarter and then a 0.2 quarter on quarter. Yikes. Yikes. And that's a big part of that very weak Q1 CPI number that we got that shocked the RBA effectively into cutting rates and reassessing their inflation outlook. And, you know, it felt a little inconsistent because... We know that the current level of residential construction activity, particularly along the eastern seaboard, is still really strong. So from our perspective, we couldn't quite reconcile why why prices were sort of stabilising and the inflation rate in that sector was collapsing and yet construction was quite strong. And, you know, you can point to the fact that the outlook for that sector looks like it's going to soften off and we've seen building approvals roll over and commencements start to flatten out. But you talk to anyone who's trying to build a house and they'll tell you that it's still hard to find a builder. You know, if you want to build, you're still you're looking at 2017 still in Sydney. So it, it sort of felt inconsistent. And um, so we have been flagging that and it did bounce back in Q2, but it bounced back a lot more than we'd expected. So it was up 09 in the quarter and all of a sudden that sort of feels almost too strong. So, uh, you know, perhaps what we need to do is even out the two quarters and um, and have a look at it in that sense. But I think it's going to be really critical going forward what that component does. It's got a high weight, it's important, and there's been a few odd things going on and it's been quite volatile. So the next couple of quarterly numbers will be important for people's calls for the RBA and that line item particularly will be uh, important and have quite a high degree of uncertainty. Okay, let's uh, move move on to the RBA. Um, so um, I, I think this will be Glenn Stevens' last, uh, or second last, second last um, uh, 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 meeting as um, chair of the board. Um, you know, he's, um, I, I suppose one way to sort of look at it is maybe he wants to um, leave 25 basis points in the, in the, uh, in the locker for, um, for, for, um, for his successor. So, um, but, um, you know, uh, overall, the RBA has done, I think, on an objective analysis, and you know, tried to balance better. They've done a pretty good job of managing what was an enormous commodity boom. Uh, you know, um, possibly um, once in forever sort of uh, a scale of a, a boom based on a demand from China, um, and then you know, um, dropping rates as that sort of came away um, to help lift um, the other parts of the economy. Um, he's got this one. September's probably not in play. Um, so uh, Stephen's got this one to go. Um, let's talk about uh, what happens next Tuesday. What do you think? Sure. Well, look, as I said, on balance, uh, we're looking for the RBA to cut rates. And I put sort of a 60 to 70 percent probability on that. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of competing forces at the moment. And inflation's low. We know that inflation's low. Um, often people will say to me, you cut rates by 25 basis points, that's not going to stoke inflation. Well, you know what? It's not going to stoke inflation today. And it's actually probably not going to stoke inflation in six months. But I think you've got to think about the end game here. And uh, we know that cutting rates does work. As you said, you know, we've had this unwind of what is a once in a lifetime commodity boom, if not a once in forever. And I, I think the surprising thing is how resilient and flexible and agile our economy has been. You know, the economy is growing at just over 3%. And we've had a mining boom that's knocked 50 billion out of our economy in investment alone, let alone the multiplier effects through wages, employment and government accounts. So uh, I, I think the economy does look okay. 
but a lot of the tailwinds that have propelled growth over the last 12 to 18 months are fading. So the housing construction sector is fading. We expect house price growth to moderate, which impacts consumers. They're 60% of the economy. And at the same time, we're not getting the same amount of stimulus from the weaker Aussie to our exports as we've had in the past. Um, and at the same time, the labour market slowed, and I think that's really important. And to put that into perspective, in the second half of last year, we were creating, on average, 30,000 jobs per month. In the first half of this year, we've created 7,000 jobs per month. Now, it's not a bad outcome, uh, but it's an outcome that says the unemployment rate now stabilises around here, five and three quarters, give or take. It's not enough to drive the unemployment rate lower. So I think when you've got low inflation and you've got a labour market that's slowing and an economy that's doing okay, but where some of the tailwinds are starting to fade, a little bit more stimulus is actually appropriate. And I guess the other comment I'd make is, where's the policy mistake? I don't think you can overstimulate the economy at the moment. And you know what? Even if you do, down the track, you've got plenty of upside to, to rein it in. So from my perspective, um, I think you ease policy now. You go preemptively because rates are low, because perhaps you don't have that many bullets left. So you go preemptively to try to lift your end game as high as you can and stoke inflation, not this year, but stoke inflation two or three or four years down the track. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's... Like the market price, you know, I come from a markets background, obviously, so I think it's uh, it's a very tight call. Uh, if it wasn't for the RBA inserting the uh, discussion about underemployment in their uh, July monetary policy statement, I would have been, I would, I would have looked at the CPI figures and I would have thought, well, maybe they'll go and hold off and wait another three months. But that underemployment, that's signaling something in relation to wage price uh, inflation as well, and you know the impact, the uh, the downward pressure it's putting on wages. Um, so unless I see something that's in the press, and let's be honest, there has been some instances where we've seen uh, leaks of sorts uh, that have come out to, uh, to journalists uh, you know, relating to a meeting, if there's something uh, wrong. Obviously, the vast majority of economists out there at the moment are predicting there'll be a rate cut. Markets are favouring that way, but not quite. Uh, but unless there's something that's to go and persuade the markets that that's not going to go and occur, I think we'll see you know, a cash rate of 1.5% come 2.30 on Tuesday. Can I also just mention, before the RBA meeting, uh, on Monday we'll get house price data, so that will be important, and also on Tuesday we'll get building approvals data. So to the extent that they talked about the labour market, but they also nominated the housing market, uh, any weakness in that number will also sort of open the door. And if you look at daily house price data, which can change and it's not seasonally adjusted, but it's looking quite weak, um, so we could get some weaker house price numbers on Monday, which may increase the odds of a rate cut. Definitely. Now, the housing market is obviously one of those things where I think that from a price perspective, the RBA wouldn't be cutting rates if it was based off prices, but it's the outlook for what's going to occur in the housing market, which they're, uh, they're most concerned about. So in that respect, you know, whilst rate cuts have obviously helped go and inflate to housing prices substantially, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, it's one of those sort of necessary evils that that's been required to go and help boost, uh, you know, you know, the wealth effect of households to go and make them feel wealthier to go and encourage them to spend um, I want to talk quickly about so low interest rates are are I think you know um, maybe two two years ago um, they weren't a sort of topic of uh, conversation but I think it's been going on for so long and there's this sort of continuing concern with the Fed having this very aggressive um, you know uh, easing policy in place for such a long time uh, now and still it's still very slow it's grinding um, back to some sort of levels of norm normal activity in the United States 
Um, and, uh, you know, in Australia, we've been cutting rates. And while the GDP numbers look great, um, you know, to a lot of people, it doesn't feel great, but maybe because the, the, um, the low wage growth, etc. But so I wanted to just quickly um, touch on why, um, why rate cuts start to become less effective uh, as they approach uh, zero, right? Because we're, we're compared to a lot of um, advanced economies around the world, we've got pretty high inflation rates. One of the one of the re- uh, sorry interest rates. One of one of the reasons that the Aussie dollar is so high. Um, but um, but uh, I, I interviewed the satirist uh, PJ O'Rourke um, yesterday uh, in Sydney, and a career highlight for me. Uh, he's a very very funny uh, guy, and uh, but he was talking about um, you know getting to these this very aggressive. Uh, monetary policy stuff, and he talked about uh, negative inflation, uh, negative interest rates, and what a what a crazy idea they were. Because he said, you know, where did this idea come from? That you know, you know, here's an idea: you uh, save up all your money, and then we'll take a little bit. In fact, after we've taken lots of it off you when you've earned it first, then you save it up, and then we'll take some more of it back off you. And he's like, great. Good idea, but um, but look, um, let's talk a little bit about this this difficulty with getting lower interest rates to achieve purchase um, in, in the economy. Sure. Well, look, there's there's sort of two points I'd make about that. The first one is it's like anything, um, you know, interest rates are already low. You, you talk to anyone with a mortgage, and they'll say, oh, you know, my rates are low. I can leverage up, and we've seen that leveraging up. So, uh, and when I talk to businesses around the country, um, it, the cost of credit is not what's prohibiting investment or capital expenditure, if you like. So interest rates are already low. Whether they're at 2 or 1.75 or 1.5, do you know the difference is actually quite marginal? So I guess that's the first point. The second one is that household debt in Australia is really high. And so low interest rates help in the sense that they reduce your your mortgage payment. But what we've seen households do is actually not reduce their mortgage repayments. They're actually paying off their debt faster. So there's a rebalancing of their balance sheet. And that's evident around the world. And in a post-GFC environment where there's worry about your job security, you know, that dread risk that the BOE talk about is very much in play. And so you're cutting rates and households aren't actually spending it. They're actually just paying down their debt. And, of course, the third thing is demographics. We have an ageing population. So increasingly, as you get older, you have less debt and more savings, and you rely on your savings to spend. And so when you cut rates, you actually hurt the spending capacity or the propensity to spend of those retirees and those older people. So all of those factors come in, and they reduce the efficiency or the efficacy of cutting rates at these levels. Joe Masters, take a bow. Just stole the word straight out, the word straight out of my mouth there. It's, uh, <laughs> Sorry about exactly, that. No, exactly what I was thinking. You know, the, to me, the, uh, the private sector is you know, it's maxed out with the credit card. They are, they're very indebted. Uh, they're concerned about uh, you know, where the world is going, so they're being cautious and not spending. Uh, those who wanted to go and borrow have borrowed already at these interest rate levels. Uh, the biggest prohibiting factor is the, is the end demand. Obviously, when you've got people saving and putting money into you know, paying off their mortgage earlier or, or trying to go and screw all away for their retirement, uh, they're not going to go spend. And that's the biggest issue we've got in the economy at the moment from a domestic perspective is that the demand is, uh, is just – the potential's there, but people are cautious about where the economy is heading, what they're going to do when they retire, how they're going to fund their retirement, so they're being naturally cautious. Yeah, the broad signal maybe that it um, that it that it sends is 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 about concern for the the, the future um, uh, prospects of the economy, or you know, and trying to pull forward um, activity to to now. So um, so you get this um, so you get this you know, while it's supposed to be releasing stimulus into the economy today, the, the there's a it starts to get to a mixed message. 
I think that's right. And you're seeing that play out in Japan. You know, there's all this discussion around helicopter money in Japan. And people are saying, well, you can give people money, but they're not going to spend it. And they have negative interest rates. So, you know, that's the extreme case of where you can end up. Now, they're, you know, I guess the Japanese culturally are, are big savers. But nonetheless, that's, that's the danger and that's the message. And, you know, you touched on it before, the sort of negative interest rates. Who, who, whoever thought, you know, we always thought in the past that zero was the, bo- was the bottom bound. And clearly that's not the case. But I do worry about how we unwind all of this and the fact that monetary policy has had to do all of the heavy lifting, um, you know, post-GFC to try and get stimulate demand and get economies back to where we want them to be. Yeah, because if you've got negative interest rates and you decide, okay, we're going to start bringing them back towards zero, you'll actually you increase the demand for um, savings and pull more out of the economy because people say, yeah, well, that's okay, exactly right. good incentive to start chucking money back into the bank. Yeah. Um, okay, look, um, so um, just quickly, I want to wrap up with um, uh, just – one thing that we've talked about on the show over the last um, few weeks, um, uh, particularly like the 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 edition that we did um, a few weeks ago um, after Brexit, uh, it was sort of chaos and it was um, sort of nobody knew where 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 this was all going to end up. The pound had been destroyed on the currency markets, um, but uh, Joe, you were um, things have settled down. Um, they have. They have settled down um, <laughs> for, mo- for now. For now, um, but Joe, you were in London. Uh, when all that was happening. What was that like? Yeah, look, it was really interesting. Uh, I was in London, fortunately. Uh, I spent two and a half hours stuck on a train, uh, courtesy of a a small rainstorm, which apparently brought the entire city to a halt. Um, But it was interesting. And, um, you know, wandering around London on the day, everywhere you went, people had these stickers, I'm in, I voted in. So everywhere you went. And I was fortunate enough um, to to be staying with a friend who, who... works in banking in Guildford. Uh, so, you know, that's the bubble in the bubble in the bubble. And uh, I, so I, I've been around London. Everywhere you went, everyone had these stickers. And then on the train back, there was quite a bit of discussion, which is unusual for the British, on the train uh, around Brexit. And everyone's going, oh, you know, voted in and it's a no-brainer. And, you know, I don't know why we've had this process and such expensive, expensive referendum when, you know, obviously we're in. And so I literally woke up the next morning on. and went... Well, what just happened there? Uh, so it was really interesting, and it obviously played out in those maps around which parts of the country were in and out, and also in the demographic split that we saw. But I was in London, obviously, the next day, uh, and that was totally different. The, it was silent. It was like a silent city of glum faces everywhere you went. So it was really interesting. Wow. Um, I think what's been uh, amazing to watch has been, you know, like the British Bank, banking stocks uh in the days after that like i mean some of them were just hammered 20 30 percent um but now the footsie is um charging ahead um so david um, you know markets have, been, have recovered pretty well from this shock they have because central banks have got their back that's uh that's the mantra that we've all come and learned to love since 2008 and some oh, actually i should say some have learned to loathe it now and particularly i think they're becoming a bit more uh vocal in their criticism but uh, i know central banks have got their back the fed's going to be you know forget about two hikes this year they might not even do one it's going to be great ultra easy monetary policy uh that's you know, the the great reflation trade again you know, it's been reflated and now you've seen that every time there's a little hiccup in the markets the reaction is that central banks are going to go and come to the party more uh, more uh, juice for the punch bowl and then the markets roar back uh, in, in response to what you're saying about the UK banks, though, remember that the pound has been smashed. So you're quoting them in, U, uh, in 
great British pound terms, not US dollar terms. So if you're going to take that out of the equation, that's still under a, a lot of pressure from a, like um, outside of a, a pound perspective. Yeah, sure. And um, uh, look, we saw a note um, this uh, this week, Leon Cooperman, a US fund manager. Um, and, you know, there has been a lot of talk about, you know, all the sort of geopolitical risk that there is around. So, you know, um, and things kind of are kind of coming from left field now. So we had this attempted coup in Turkey. Um, you know, Russia is very uncertain. Uh, China is China and it could decide to do something tomorrow, which could, you know, have a very significant impact. Um, but this guy, uh, Cooperman, was just saying that, look, everything's kind of going to be okay. Um, that, you know, that when you look at all the risks that are baked in there, that are set out there for the next six months, um, that the market's probably going to ride it out. Now, stock valuations are extremely high. And, you know, there's a saying in markets, you know, don't catch a falling knife, um, you know, which is that, you know, sometimes, so when things start to fall, they can fall and keep falling. Um, so I think a view like Cooperman's uh, is really interesting because there's, um, you know, he's probably not alone in that in that thinking. Yeah, look, I think it's really interesting. There's no doubt that uncertainty and event risk is, is heightened at the moment. And you, you gave a great list of, but you missed out the US presidential election. So that's also a big one, right? Oh, that um, too. And that too, yeah. And, uh, and you know, interestingly, that's the week after the November RBA meeting. So so that complicates things uh, perhaps. But um, it, it is interesting how well markets have absorbed these and but I think it comes back to that point about liquidity and central banks and those sort of things and I, I, I like to believe that everything's going to be okay um, but I'm not sure I, I get this sense if you look at all those event risks globally you've got this sense of um, disenchantment with um, prevailing political parties with major political parties and you know we've seen that as part of the Brexit story, you're clearly seeing that in the US, and we saw that here in Australia as well. Increased um, turnout towards minor parties, and yeah, the highest highest vote that's ever been for um, for for smaller parties and independents. Yeah, and so that's telling us something. That's telling us actually that um, that the populations are unsettled and slightly disgruntled and a little unhappy. And and of course, part of the Brexit story was you know um, salaries paid to bankers that are funded you know by by London being a financial centre and those sort of things. So. It's a global trend, and I think it's slightly worrying. Um, so I hope everything's going to be okay, but I'm I'm less sure. Yeah, because um, I suppose the, the 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 risk is that you know you get a a, a sudden um, and dramatic change. The thing about elections is they happen, and the result you know is in force from from that day. Um, so you can have a surprise result, and that's the way things are going to be for a while. And if you have a very sudden change in say a government or the composition of a parliament or whatever. Uh, you get this very rapid um, uh, reorganization of the policy landscape. Um, and the risks for that, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out before they happen and hard to, I guess, if from a market's perspectives, maybe position to manage the risks that might come from a, an unknown result. Well, I think that's right. It, um and it's a little bit like calling the RBA, actually, in the sense that you can go into a meeting, you know, we're talking about next Tuesday, and you say, oh, I think they're going to cut, and I think the chance of that is 60 or 70%, but the outcome is binary. They either cut or they don't cut. And it's a little bit the same with elections. You go into it, and you've got betting agencies and polls, and, and so, you, so you'll say, oh, I think the chance of X happening is whatever percentage, but if Y happens, Y's happened. Uh, and that's why it's so hard for markets to position going into it.
The guy's an equity guy, isn't that right? This he's made this call about not to worry. Let me ask you both: Has have you ever met an equities person who's not been overly optimistic about the outlook for everything in the world, particularly stocks? No, that's that's the thing. They operate in the upper echelons of the risk spectrum. They love to have the riskier assets. It's going to be very rare to go and find someone who's going to be a downbeat stock analyst. Um, so that's just my little uh, disclaimer I'll give you to anyone who's saying not to worry. Um, I went through a, a list of what he was going and talking about. Don't worry about China. Don't worry about this. Uh, don't worry about Brexit. Uh, no, Brexit alone, I'm not concerned about. What I'm concerned about is the ramifications for the European Union as a whole. Uh, no, Italy, France, uh, the Netherlands, there's a whole gambit of, uh, of major nations who are the core of that uh, European Union who are coming up to uh, elections, potentially where you're going to have a rise of Eurosceptic parties. If you have a Brexit in one of those countries, forget it. The show's over. Um, as for the, the general markets as a whole, uh, I get the impression that uh, whilst the economy is still chugging along, even with this extraordinarily large amounts of stimulus, it won't be until the real economy falters that there'll be an issue. If the real economy falters, it won't matter how much the, uh, the central banks go and stimulate, and that's when you've got to be concerned, and that's when the markets will have their, uh, their moment, their messiah, uh, the, the, the deer of uh, what potentially could occur. Um, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast uh, from Business Insider Australia. Um, we've gone a little, little bit longer than we normally do. It was just uh, such a great chat. Um, our, um, our guest this week has been Joanne Masters, a senior economist at ANZ. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Uh, so you can find us on iTunes under Devils and Details, on the web at businessinsider.com.au, on Facebook at Business Insider Australia, and on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We're also all on there uh, individually on Twitter as well. Um, just look us up. Search. Um, I've been Paul Colgan. This uh, show is produced by Josh Nicholas, and we'll talk to you all next week. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.